So my name is Daniel Froman. I'm from Bloomington, Indiana. I've been there my whole life. I love it. Ohio is great too, though. And let's see, as Pastor Alex said, I, I've been a Christian for about seven years or so. Um, was raised Jewish and was searching for truth. Didn't get it from my family or from my tradition. I loved being a Jew. It was awesome. Probably loved it too much. In fact, I still struggle with that. But uh, as far as it goes, um, always looking for to know God. And I never found it. And I was in college and I was studying Chinese abroad in Taiwan. And my roommate, who was from Kentucky, he witnessed to me about Jesus. And there was nothing special, special about that young man. His grades weren't as good as mine. His background wasn't as you know, prestigious as mine. But he had a humble fear of the Lord. And while everyone else was out partying, drinking, enjoying themselves. He'd stay home. He'd pray. He'd wake up early. He'd do devotions. I'd wake up angry and, you know, that I had to be going to school and he'd wake up smiling and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, and I hated that. But I, I just saw that he had something that I desired. He had this life. And so speaking to him about this over the course of the summer, he told me about Jesus and I said, wow, that sounds so good. But Jews can't believe in Jesus. And he opened up over those conversations that, no, in fact, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, something I'd never heard about. Um, and so I ended up praying. I said, Jesus, if you're really the Jewish Messiah, show me. If you give me a sign and a miracle, because obviously a Jewish Messiah can do that, then I'll believe. And I said that, I lay down in bed, and immediately the Holy Spirit came upon me. <sighs> Filled me with the love and the peace, the warmth of God. So that is essentially how God made himself known to me at first. Um, but interestingly, and I think relevant to this topic, I didn't accept Jesus right away because I wanted to talk to my rabbis. I wanted to blah, 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 blah. I put it off. And it wasn't until Jesus convicted me of my sin that I just got down on my knees immediately and said, Lord, I'm yours. I need you right now. So I think that's going to that's gonna tie in a little bit to the fear of the Lord and how crucial it is for the life of a Christian. Anyway, I also wanted to say, uh, it's just great to be here in Cincinnati with you guys. Um, got to stay with Mark and Melissa last night and meet their beautiful new baby and um, getting to see familiar faces, dear ones, Paul Ogenin. He took me out to eat last night. It was great to catch up. Uh, my father's from Cincinnati. My two grandparents are buried here in the Jewish cemetery. They lived in Finneytown. Uh, and last year, my, my, we buried my dad in Bloomington. He died of cancer, and he died an unbeliever. Um, and, but shortly before he died, we came and buried my grandmother's ashes here. So it's, um, this place has a lot of um, memories for me. So, that being said, I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 112, which is a wisdom psalm, so it's similar to the Proverbs that we read. It's about righteousness and telling you what it looks like to be righteous, just like all the Proverbs say, avoid the adulterous woman, walk in uprightness. This is kind of what a wisdom psalm is. 
And Psalm 112 and Psalm 111 are of a pair. They are both, Psalm 111 is about God's righteousness and his faithfulness. And 112 is about man's righteousness and faithfulness and how God is faithful to bless the righteous man. So they're both 10 verses long and they're both acrostics. Who knows what an acrostic is? Who under the age of 20? Uh, I see you raise your hand. What's an acrostic? Calling someone else. Okay, I see you. Okay. So what I was thinking of is pretty similar. It's where you start with the first letter of the alphabet. So in this case, it's Aleph because it's Hebrew. And then every half verse after that starts with the next letter. So Aleph and then Bet. Gimel, Dalet, Hey. So it's just a beautiful way of expressing a poem. And the Psalms are those. They're poems, they're songs, they're praise, and they use metaphors and similes. And it's just a really great way to praise God. So anyway, that's where we're in. And Psalm 112, the main thesis is the first verse, which says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments. So that's the thesis. That's what I want you to take away, if nothing else. How great, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments. Okay. So let's read together from the text. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with a man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He's given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, So, when I started to think about preaching this, I was thinking, this is going to be easy, it's going to be an encouragement, this is all about how God blesses righteousness, and blesses you guys when you're righteous. I'm thinking, oh, this is, there's no problem with this. However, as I started to think about it, I realized that there was an issue, which is the sticky situation of righteousness, and our righteousness. How many of you are forgiven by God? I want to see all hands. I mean, be honest, but how many of you are forgiven? Okay. Um, how are you forgiven by God? God might forgive you? Is it, does it depend on how bad the sin is? Okay. He forgives you, right? And how, 
And what is it that forgives you? God forgives you. How? Okay, I want a more of a, um, a Sunday school answer. Who can give me a Sunday school answer for that? I see someone whispering over here. Why don't you tell me? He calms you. Okay, I want something more ancient. I want something 2,000 years ago. Who, who, who's a kid who could tell me what happened 2,000 years ago? Okay, back there, yeah. Who died? Christ died for our sins. Right, amen. So we're forgiven because Christ died for our sins. He paid the perfect price with his blood, which was sinless, right? God himself died for our sins. This is how we are forgiven, This right? So God does forgive you when you pray. That's great. Ultimately, it's through the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice, okay? So this is what separates Christianity from every single other religion. Judaism, Islam, liberalism, recycle your trashism, um, solar panelism, what, wokeism. Everything requires you to do something. Only in Christianity is it the blood of the Messiah pays for your sins, okay? Now, that is not really, I mean, with us, that's not a, uh, what's the word, uh, controversial topic. No one's going to re- refute that. Next question for the kids. What happens now? You've been forgiven. You on the corner there, young man. What happens? You've been forgiven. Now what? Okay. Good answer. Very good. The the dirty little secret of modern evangelicalism is sanctification. Okay? You, have you all heard of sanctification? All the kids? We all know sanctification. You know. It's only half the gospel that Christ died for our sins. The second half is so that we can walk in righteousness. And Americans don't like that because it's hard. We don't like, I don't like that because it means I actually have to do something. And the fact is, I am required to produce fruit. I'm required to have righteousness of my, through the Spirit of myself. I need to be righteous. You can't just be saved. You can't say, I believe in Jesus. Now I get to sit on the couch and eat potato chips and watch TV all day. Because I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. That is not the gospel. So I have some Bible verses to, to read to you that I think is going to show this. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by, the, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So this is talking about what? Justification. For initial forgiveness. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Praise God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. For he is, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He gave us this gift in order that we would do good works for the good works that he created. That is the reason Jesus died, so that we would walk in holiness. Romans 8, close to where you were talking about, 
8, 1 through 4 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. First Peter 1 Peter 1.15 says, Be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He's talking to Christians. He's quoting the Old Testament, but it's not just for Old Testament believers. Be holy is for those who've been justified, for those who've been forgiven. We are required to be holy. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is taboo, brothers, to talk about. This is scary stuff. This is, I'm required to do something. I'm required through the Spirit, but I'm required to do it. So, here's what I'm not saying. Or this is not saying, you have to do good works in order to be forgiven. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Do we all understand that, kiddos? We all understand you're forgiven by what? You can shout it out, you're forgiven by Jesus, right? But what does he require of you? To be holy, okay? So, This text is meant to be an encouragement because sometimes it, can, sometimes it can feel like a burden. Oh, yeah, I know I have to be righteous. I know I have to do these things, but man, it's so hard or blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, and uh, I know in heaven, you know, it's going to be good, but uh, it's just really hard to be righteous. Come on. Does anyone feel that way? I don't know. Okay. Maybe I'm the only one. But the thing about our God is that he, in this psalm, and I'm, we're going to work through it, talking through each verse, but it's all about how he, he blesses you lavish, lavishly and abundantly with good things in this life and in the life to come. God is not an exacting God who says, well, you must be righteous because that's just what you have to do, and you know, I've done enough for you, and that's it. He says, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour out blessings on you so lavishly and abundantly. And this is, should cause you to just, pr- first of all, want to be righteous. Oh, give me some of that righteousness. I want those blessings. I want, to, you know, I want the good things of the Lord. And then also, once you start getting them and you just start to praise God, because when he gives you blessings, you want to praise because he is such a wonderful God. Okay. I'm going to put this over here. And let's get going. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. That's always a good place to start. The Lord's prayer starts that way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then you start doing the things. Praise your name. Praise the Lord. That's how we should start our life. We wake up in the morning. Praise the Lord. Thank you for giving me life. 
How blessed is the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments. This is what it means to be a Christian. You fear the Lord and you greatly delight in his commandments. Fear of the Lord is also a controversial topic. Non-denominational megachurch Christians say that you don't have to fear the Lord once you're a Christian. Who's heard that before? I heard, I heard that. He says, you, you fear the Lord before you're a Christian, but then, but then once you're a Christian, you don't have to fear anymore. And then reform types say, well, fear means reverence. And reverence means kind of respect, and respect means you like the guy, and, and that just means, you know, you put up with him. That's not what it means either. Fear means fear, to fear the Lord. Okay. Let me prove to you that you do, in fact, fear the Lord, or you should fear the Lord. Okay? So we all know, uh, do you want to go to hell? No. Do you fear hell? Yes. You fear the Lord, because he'll throw you into hell for your sins. Okay? So what does that do? That causes you to repent, and you turn to the Lord, and you run to the Lord. Okay? So I'm a Christian. I've run to the Lord, and um, no need to fear anymore, right? So kind of yes, kind of no. What do, we, what do we think? So the fact is, this runs up against the once saved, always saved heresy, which says that if you say it's a distortion of the truth, we know as Reformed men that if God chooses you, you're going to be saved. You're saved, you're saved all the way through, and you can't lose your salvation. Do we know that? Okay. But there's a difference between God choosing you and you saying, I said the sinner's prayer, or I was baptized, or I come to church every week. Did you know that you can come to church every week and not be a Christian? That you can be a liar? You can say you're a Christian and not be? So we're required in our Christian life to, to fear the Lord and to always, what do I want to say? How do I want to say this? Okay, you have a king. His enemies fear him. And there was once an enemy of the king. And he came to the king and said, King, you know what? I don't want to be your enemy anymore. I want to be, I want to be your friend. I want to be your servant. Uh, forgive me and let me be part of your kingdom. And the king says, yes, come into my court and you can serve me all the days of your life. Does that servant stop fearing the king? No. He delights in the king, but he knows that if he starts planning rebellion against the king, off with his head. So if you're walking in the Christian life and you start planning rebellion against the Lord and you give up the faith, it's off with your head. So you have to make sure that you are staying obedient to the Lord when you come to church after five years, after 10 years, after 20 years of being a Christian. Do you fear the Lord? So the story, God taught me the fear of the Lord a couple years back. Um, as This was after I knew Pastor McNeely. Uh, he already said I had zeal for the Lord then. But it got to a point where I was, I was struggling with a sin and I, I could not kick it. Try as I might, every, I repent to the Lord, Lord, help me with this. Um, 
and I just wouldn't get better. In fact, it got worse. It got worse and worse and worse, and I was so I didn't want to confess it to a pastor. I didn't want to bring it out into light. And I remember I was doing homework at the Indiana University Library in a quiet room, and it came to the point where I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know what? I think if I continue in this sin, this is going to be a repudiation of the faith for me. Because I'm choosing, because I know I have to repent and turn, and I'm not turning. And if I continue in this sin, it's going to be death to my soul. And the scary thing is, I was actually close to being okay with it. I was close to saying, you know what, that's okay. I'm just going to pretend to be a Christian the rest of my life. I'm just going to keep coming to church. You know, people are still going to think I'm a Christian, but I've got this dark, dirty sin, and I am, I'm not walking with the Lord. And it was at that depth of the darkest time in my life, and the Lord showed me hell. And I realized I'd, I'd be turning my back on the Lord, and I'd be going right to hell. And when he showed me that, I said, Lord, no, I cannot. And all of a sudden, all the fear of embarrassment, the fear of losing your standing in the community, that just went whoosh, by the wayside when you think about hell. <laughs> so I text my pastor. I say, hey, I got to confess some sin to you. Da, 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 da. And met with him and relieved. I came clean to the Lord. So anyway, that is the fear of the Lord and it is a great blessing to us. It causes us to turn from our sin even after we're Christians and run to the Lord. And in fact, that is what the Christian life is. is turning from our sin, running to the Lord. Now, once you've done that, once you're in the bosom of the Lord, what does that make you do? Well, you delight and you greatly delight in the commandments of God. Because no longer it's a burden, no longer it's condemnation, no longer it's saying, you're continuing your sin, you're going to hell. When you trust in the Lord and you're in His bosom, you greatly delight because you love the things of the Lord. You love His ways and you want to be like Him. And so you love his commandments. Okay? This is what it means to be a Christian. You fear the Lord and you greatly delight in his commandments. So, this verse says that the man who does these things, he's blessed by the Lord. Do you believe that you're blessed by the Lord? Huh? Sometimes it's hard to see. Um, sometimes you think, you know, I think the wicked are blessed and I think the righteous are cursed. If you look outside, you see politics is going crazy. You see wickedness in the highest places of our government. Our president, our vice president. You see the woke movement going crazy. You see our school systems being corrupted. You see the deterioration of the family. And you said, it looks like wickedness is allowed to be rampant. You look at your unbelieving colleagues who don't seem to have a care in the world and make lots of money 
and go out for happy hour drinks after work and take nice vacations. You see, let's see, women who work full-time jobs and so their families have lots of money and big mansions. And you think, well, that would be nice to have all that money. Or, man, if I didn't have so many kids, I'd have more money. Or all sorts of things. You see your friends from college who just look like they're flourishing. Their social media accounts look like they're just living their best lives now. And meanwhile, what are you doing? You're slaving away. What, you're setting up chairs in the auditorium for Sunday worship. All your friends are out partying and you're, what, having to stay home and do devotions or or you've got health issues, uh, afflictions that God's put on you, and you say, I don't feel blessed. You're at the end of your rope. It doesn't always seem like we're blessed, but this is an opportunity for you to walk by faith and not by sight when you doubt these things. Because it clearly says how blessed is the man. And so you can say, Lord, I believe that. And so this is a chance to exercise your spiritual muscles. But, looking at your church, I do see that you really are blessed, and I think you all know it. You're blessed with big families, children, money, good jobs, a warmth of community, good pastors, And so this is also an opportunity for you to recognize just how very blessed you guys are. Okay. Verse 2. The first blessing. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Well, I wanted to say I can see your descendants are very mighty. You got a lot of kids here, which is the blessing. And the first thing about this blessing is that it's a comfort for parents who are worried about their children's future. The righteous man, his descendants will be mighty. It's hard to have the faith to discipline your kids, to to pray for their salvation. You don't know how they're going to turn out. But God here is, is saying that he blesses your righteous kids. Your righteousness in your kids. This is a comfort. The other thing about this is, um, this is a testimony to God's, um, for lack of a better word, life-affirmingness. Dispensationalism has written off the body and written off this world. Some Christians say, the world's a sinking ship. We got to get as many people saved and we got to get on our spacecrafts and get out of here for the rapture. That's not what the Bible says and that's not what God says. He cares about our bodies. He created this world and we're going to be here for a while. And ultimately, we're not just saved to heaven. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth and we're going to be resurrected in bodily form. So what he says here is, 
you're going to have descendants and they're going to be mighty. And so that means that we should plan for the future. A good Christian thinks about his descendants and what they're going to be like. And it means a Christian builds good infrastructure and builds beautiful buildings that stand up and books and ideas that last because we're not just, the world's not going to end tomorrow. It might, but we don't live as if it is. We live as if we are supposed to be stewards of this world. So that's life-affirming in my book. Oh, the second thing is this. Um, We all want to live on. People pay millions of dollars to music schools to have their name put on it. They build statues. And they also have kids in order to live on through their kids. And so this is God's promise that I'm going to make your seed, that's, that's the word, your seed, mighty. I'm going to bless you a hundred years from now. You're going, to be, you're going to be thriving through your kids. So I think that's a pretty cool idea. Um, now, here's the deal. If you don't have kids, and it's, I mean, it may not be because of sin. And so this doesn't mean everyone who doesn't have kids is, uh, is sinning. So, Verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. This is a sensitive subject, wealth and riches. Americans don't like talking about wealth and riches. Maybe because we have so much of it. Maybe because Christians don't like talking about this because of prosperity gospelism, which makes God about a cash cow, makes him into a money giver. But it clearly says that the righteous man, wealth and riches are going to be in his house. Can I get an amen? I'm serious. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. God is a generous God. A very, very generous God. Um, I think you guys are pretty wealthy. So, don't be too holy and say, well, that wealth came from me and not from God. God didn't bless me with that. If you have good things, it came from God. So, praise God for your wealth. Um, he does this through supernatural means, you know, jobs coming out of the blue, inheritances. He does it through normal means, like you guys have family meals together, which is the number one indicator of success. You teach your kids to, to read, to love to read, to think about ideas. Your parents love each other. Um, you discipline your children. These are all the things that cause for wealth. And so I'm a public defender, and uh, my clients are living in cycles of poverty, and they don't have these things, so they're, they're trapped. They're trapped and trapped. But the gospel breaks through. God breaks through, and he causes these great blessings. His righteousness endures forever. It's easy to think that what you do in darkness goes into obscurity. And no one remembers it, no one sees it. But when you, when you refuse a bribe, or children, when your friends entice you to evil, that's what the proverb says, right? And you, you turn around and say, no. You may think that no one remembers that, but it says it lasts forever. Your righteousness endures You will see it on the last days. You'll see it when God judges you for your deeds. And God sees it. 
So take heart to do the right thing when no one's looking because it lasts what you do. Verse 4, light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. Okay, in the Hebrew, it just says after uh, dark for the upright, it just says colon, gracious, compassionate, righteous. So the he is, is um, read into that. But regardless, God is the light that in the darkness that arises for the upright. In your darkest hour, when you've walked in your righteousness, God will come and shine light on you. Light is warmth, it's life, it's illumination, it's understanding. In your darkest hour, God arises and he's gracious and compassionate and righteous. Verse 5, it's well with the man who is gracious in the lens, he will maintain his cause in judgment. Okay? So when you're gracious and when you lend to people, look, I'll take someone out to eat and I'll think, well, you know, he's going to pay me, he's going to get me lunch next time. And I'm kind of like holding my breath, waiting for him to invite me out for lunch. I'm like, you know, I, I paid 12 bucks for his meal. <laughs> When's he going to pay me back? So, don't be such a tightwad. Be gracious and lend. And look what it says. Isn't this weird? He will maintain his cause in judgment. He's like, he's going to do well in court. His people are going to trust what he says. People are going to trust his word. When you're, when you're gracious, people, people respect you. Six, he will not, he, for he will never be shaken. So that's also tied. For he will never be shaken. The righteous man doesn't shake. When you, when you choose to do the righteous thing and to walk uprightly, you often feel like the slightest puff of air will blow you over. Like, Lord, I'm really stepping out on a limb to do this thing. And I need your support because I just feel so weak right now. This is a promise, for he will never be shaken. When you act in righteousness, you won't be shaken. You'll be firm. Who wants to be firm? I want to be firm. Yeah, right? You want to be strong. You know, they're those sumo guys. And they wrestle and you try to push over one of those sumo guys and, and even the strongest man can't really do it. You won't be shaken. His righteousness, the righteousness, the righteous will be remembered forever. This goes similarly to righteousness enduring. How do you want to be remembered by your grandsons? or your great-grandsons, or your community. The righteous will be remembered forever. We want our memory. My dad spent the last couple years of his life, every morning he'd look at the pictures of his parents and grandparents, and he'd remember them. And he would light, and the Jewish idea, we light candles to remember them on their death anniversary. Um, he wanted to remember his family, and he wanted us to remember them, and he wanted us to remember him. Now, it was kind of sad because he wasn't a Christian, so it's a bittersweet memory. But still, we all want to be remembered. This says, the righteous will be remembered forever. We're going to be remembered by people, and we'll be remembered by God himself. And what an encouragement to be remembered by God. Verse 7, 
He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. He is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. Okay? The righteous man does not fear evil tidings. You lost your job. There's a draft and you got to go to war in Ukraine. You know, uh, your child was born with disabilities. The righteous man doesn't fear because he trusts. What does it say in Romans? You know, neither famine or persecution or the sword can separate me from the love of Christ. That's a paraphrase. Um, you don't fear evil. His heart's steadfast, trusting in Yahweh. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. Do you have enemies? Uh, yes, I do. Otherwise, it wouldn't say love your enemies. Okay? The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is we love our enemies, but we have them. We have people who hate us and want, desire our hurt. And we love them, and we pray for them, and we tell them, you got to repent. you got to turn. But ultimately, this is the life-affirming God, is He punishes our enemies. We're not above that as Christians. He will look with satisfaction on His adversaries. Don't be holier than Scripture. You have adversaries, pray for them, and trust that God will judge them for it. While they're laughing at you, has anyone ever laughed at you guys in the back? Yeah? Has anyone ever laughed at you for righteousness? In the very back. How about you guys? Yeah? For righteousness. How many people thought you're stupid for being Christians? Or for not doing something that they wanted you to do? Who's going to laugh in the end? It says you will look with satisfaction on your adversaries. Okay? Verse 9, he's given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. So, just actually, the other day I was re reading through 2 Corinthians, which is a great heartwarming book. I'd never, I never thought anything of 2 I'd thought nothing of 2 Corinthians. I just didn't know anything about it. Uh, and then I read it, and it's totally beautiful. Please read it. Um, but it quotes this verse. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through something. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So he's given freely to the poor. 
do we have any poor here? I hear your deacon's fund is overflowing. So how do you give to the poor? Do you have a poor friend? Go make a poor friend. I mean, I'm kind of serious. Um, give to other churches. So the context of this letter is they were taking a collection from the Corinthian church and they were going to send it to Jerusalem because they were poor and in need there. He is given freely to the poor. Conservatives, we don't really like to give to the poor. Um, we think that they should work for themselves and make their money. Um, there's truth to that, but there's truth to the fact that it's really, it's all throughout Scripture encouraged and commanded to treat the poor well. So don't be proud of your wealth and don't be afraid of the dirt of the poor people. Right? That man, his righteousness endures forever and his horn will be exalted in honor. Now, what it says in Corinthians is that, let's see, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything. So when you give, you are enriched. Actually, monetarily, you, when you give, God gives back to you. And he also uses it to increase your righteousness. And he does it to increase the praise of his saints. Because when we give and when we share, people start praising the Lord. And when we get, we start praising the Lord. So ultimately, all these blessings are meant to increase our praise for the Lord. Finally, verse 10, the wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So you have, on one hand, the righteous man who stands like a pillar. And God remembers him forever. And he stands firm. And then you have all the people in your life who've hated you, who've hated Jesus, who've gnashed their teeth, who've pursued the God of their bellies, the God of their eyes, the God of their lusts, who you've prayed for, you've cried for. And it says ultimately, they're going to come to nothing. Hard words. But very satisfying. Okay. So this concludes the sermon. I was trying to uplift you guys. You don't look very uplifted, so I, I don't know. But <laughs> the idea is we all know that we're supposed to walk in righteousness. We all know that. But what I'm, I'm hoping, I, what this tells you is that God is so extra. That's a, like, a, I don't know, a word from a couple years ago. He's extra. He's pouring blessings on top of you. And everything you do is like you're getting the best investment on your money and your time when you act righteously. So this is God saying, eh, it's not enough that I'm just going to 
I'm not going to require. It's not enough that it saved you. It's not enough that I sent Jesus to die for you. But I want to bless you abundantly. And brothers, please, when you're blessed abundantly, please give praise to the Lord. Okay? And please share your abundant blessings with others so that they can praise the Lord too. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in fear and with great delight in you. And we thank you for your mercies upon us. We thank you that you've forgiven us through the precious blood of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you brought us into one body. And we thank you that you teach us the way to act, that you've prepared us to do good works. And we ask that you strengthen us as we go about this. Thank you for the added encouragement of these blessings that you bless the one who fears you and greatly delights in your commandments. We ask that we would praise you and take joy every time we are able to be strong for you, Father. And, um, and we pray that through our testimony and our witness, we would be a testimony and witness to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.